Scripture provides us our assurance of pardon. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was indeed given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When we turn from our sin and trust in the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, we are assured of the good news of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Amen. Our scripture lesson today, by the way, 50 years. Congratulations. Praise God for that. Our scripture lesson today comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in the front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Lord our God, we do ask that in this time, in this place, the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight. Because, Lord, you are our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our series going through the Gospel of Mark this morning. Today we're looking at one of the better known episodes and this, this healing of the paralytic. And when I was a kid, this made one of the great flannel board presentations in Sunday school. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Mrs. Warren put up the house first where Jesus was teaching, and then she marched four men up the side, and then she would pantomime them digging through the roof and lowering the, the paralytic into the house to, to show where Jesus would have been um, as they lowered the man into the room. Now, here's the thing about scripture passages like this. 
they are so rich with material that there are any number of ways that you can go with a sermon. For example, we could talk about the importance of faith. That is, how the men carrying the paralytic must have really believed that Jesus could heal their friend because they went to such extraordinary lengths to get Jesus to look at him. And this sermon would focus on how we need to anticipate that our faith is going to encounter challenges. His friends really weren't discouraged or defeated by the crowd that was in their way. How faith requires perseverance as they climbed up onto the roof and dug it out so that they could lower their friend in. And that God often answers our prayers with a yes, but in ways that are unexpected and unforeseen. As Jesus declares the man's forgiven, sins forgiven, and only then, almost as an afterthought, and as a rebuke to the scribes, tells the man to take up his mat and go home. In other words, this narrative lends itself towards preaching a sermon on faith. But that's not the sermon I have for you this morning. <laughs> Another possibility would be to talk about Jesus in the midst of this account, how he's preaching the word, how the ceiling must have seemed like it was caving in on him, and how he looked up and saw the extraordinary faith of the friends who would be willing to dig into their neighbor's roof in order to lower the paralytic man in front of him. I mean, I can see Jesus kind of checking his sermon notes and saying, well, this isn't exactly what I planned, but all right. And this sermon would talk about how Jesus' heart was moved when he saw the friend's faith. And it's to talk about God's joy and humor in watching us as his children. And how Jesus then takes this moment to reveal something, reveal something even bigger than anyone anticipated. This is the how big and wonderful is your God sermon. And that's also not the sermon I'm going to preach to you this morning. The sermon I have for you this morning is something that stu struck me as I started meditating on this passage. It's the encounter with the scribes. You see, although this is a healing miracle, that's not Mark's focus in telling it. This was a change for Jesus. I mean, to this point, he'd been revealing the kingdom of God that he'd been proclaiming by things that were pleasing to everybody, right? Healings and casting out demons. I mean, everybody's happy about that. Everybody's impressed. They asked, who is this who teaches with authority? Who is this that commands out the unclean spirit? and it obeys. Who is this that heals the sick by just a touch? It was all amazing. It was awesome, and everybody was happy. Not so this time, because Jesus took this opportunity to venture into new territory when he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And as Mark recounted it, this was a showstopper. Wait, what? What did he just say? Did he say what we think we heard him say? Oh, no, he didn't. Yes, yes, he did. 
And what we have in the account of Jesus' healing today is this first real confrontation between Jesus and the church authorities of his day. It's the first of several such confrontations. Without any kind of warning, Mark just kind of drops in this little detail like it was a given. Crowded inside the house were the scribes. Now, the scribes are like a theological union or guild, right? These were the guys who had paid their dues in education and training to be considered the professionals of their day. Jesus, who'd returned to Capernaum, the scene of his initial preaching and action, was on display, and these guys were going to have a good, hard look at him. And though Mark doesn't really have much positive to say about him, it's not difficult to see who these guys were. They were devoted to the law, the authority of Scripture, and the oral traditions they'd received from their elders. They were looking out for themselves, sure, but they also could have understood that it was their job to spot frauds and con men. People would be asking them, well... What do you think? Is this guy the real deal or what? A few years ago, Steve Martin made a movie called Leap of Faith about a traveling con man who ran a tent revival specializing in healings. Well, the scribes were the guys who kept their town folk from being hoodwinked by charlatans. In other words, they're guys like me. So there they were listening to Jesus proclaim the message. You remember from Mark chapter 1, time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news of the gospel. They would have been listening to the teachings as skeptics, and they would have been doing their best Siskel and Ebert analysis, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. You know this is true because we all do it, right? Some of you are doing it right now. You're going to compare notes with your friends, and you're going to critique the sermon afterwards. I get it. Don't worry. I don't blame you. I do it too, right? I'm the one who's preaching, and I do it. Anyway, in the midst of Jesus' discourse, the paralytic man's dropped down through the roof, and that's where things got interesting, because Jesus looked up, saw the friends, looks at the man, says, son, your sins are forgiven. It's a lightning bolt coming out of the blue, and here's why that's a showstopper. Only God forgives sins. You can forgive the wrong someone has done to you, but you sin against God. You remember David, after the Bathsheba affair, after he had had her husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed on the field of battle? David says this in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. David wronged Uriah the Hittite about as badly as possible, but he sinned, rebelled against God's righteousness. 
he sinned against God. And only God forgives sin. In Exodus 34, after the golden calf incident, Moses asked to be reassured of God's presence going forward with the people. He asked for an assurance of God's forgiveness of Israel. And as a sign, he asked to see God's glory. And God obliged. So with Moses hidden in the cleft of the rock, the Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In the next chapter, in chapter 44, the Lord says, I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Now, when you hear the assurance of pardon in our worship service, it's a declaration I make to you based on the promises God made in Scripture. I am not forgiving your sin." So pay attention to what happened here. The scribes had the law correct. Only God forgives sin. They had the application wrong. They knew God is one. Therefore, God could not be standing in front of them flesh and blood. So they concluded Jesus was blaspheming. In the minds of the scribes, because Jesus could not be God, they start with that assumption. Jesus should not claim to be able to do what only God can do. Claiming to do something that only God could do meant that you were claiming to usurp God's power. It was blasphemy, which automatically meant you were a fraud. Blasphemy is a big deal. It was a crime, and it was punishable by death. It was the charge that ultimately would be used to convict Jesus before the Jewish authorities. And they would twist that to claim that Jesus was claiming to be a God more powerful than Caesar, an act of treason, with the request to have Pilate sentence him to death on the cross. Here, however, Mark was only illustrating how Jesus pushed forward the kingdom of God into the realm of the religious power of the day. See, at this point, the scribes hadn't had time to really think about what was going on. But by the time we get to the last of these early confrontations at the end of chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. We'll get there. We're just not there yet. At this point, we just have the opening round in this confrontation between Jesus and the religious authorities. And Jesus turns to them, and he asks them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? That cuts me to the core because I can totally understand the scribe's position. I mean, they knew the law. And they were thinking to apply it like a rule book. 
However, Jesus' teaching and action fulfilled the law as God intended it. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's what the Lord says in Isaiah 55. Humility is necessary when we apply Scripture to God's creation. We need to take God's word seriously, but we should not think that we understand it all or have it all figured out. God is completely capable of surprising us. God is completely capable of fulfilling his promises in ways we didn't expect and couldn't imagine. So we must always prayerfully seek to discern the movement of God in ways we didn't expect. And that's exactly what happened here. Jesus went on to say, So that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus took away any ambiguity at all about his meaning, and he demonstrated his authority to declare the forgiveness of sins. Now, if the scribes had gotten the point the rest of the Gospel of Mark might have been very different. But instead, they fulfilled another prophecy from Isaiah 6. Keep listening, but don't comprehend. Keep looking, but don't understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears. Shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes, listen with their ears, comprehend with their minds, and turn and be healed. The scribes' hearts turned hard. They were embarrassed to have been shown up in this encounter. Living in the certainty of their own understanding without humility caused them to miss the point entirely. Jesus deliberately used this event to make a strong revelation of his authority and the march of the kingdom of God, this campaign Jesus was on, took another step forward. But that's not all. There's another reason why Mark related this account. Remember that the early believers in Rome were a mixture of Jew and Gentile. Early believers struggled to understand their relationship with the synagogue. And early believers were subject to persecution from the Roman authorities. And Mark wanted his readers to see that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. He was personally the promised one of God, and he does have the authority to command us to come follow him. Institutional church and governments do not hold a higher claim of loyalty than the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The tendency in the early church was for believers to be confronted by Jews who were trying to get them to conform to old ways. Paul's letter to the Galatians is one example of that conflict. The letter to the Hebrews is another. And as Jesus did in this episode, Mark was telling the church, loyalty is to Jesus, not to an institution that would deny his authority. This speaks to us today. We don't worship the church. We are the church that worships the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The church exists to worship Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church, but the institutional structure of the church 
cannot be mistaken for being Jesus. Our loyalty is to Jesus. He's called us to be joined together in worshiping. And in our joining together, it is for the purpose of proclaiming him, to share that good news with the lost, and to encourage one another. Let me illustrate it a different way. Presbyterians are part of the Reformed tradition. Our heritage comes from a time when we were thrown out of the Roman Catholic Church. And the tipping point, point for the Reformation was the practice of indulgences, where people would pay priests to pray for their deceased loved ones to get them out of jail early. Right? There was even an advertising jingle. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory, it doth spring. It's not exactly plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. But it's not bad for the 1500s, right? Well, the campaign was a fundraiser for the construction of the Vatican, and the institutional church promoted this as a good thing. It was completely inconsistent with Scripture. And the slogan of the Reformation traced back to Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door, challenging this practice of the indulgences, included five solas, five alones, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, right? There's going to be a quiz on this at the end of October. I'm just telling you now. Faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. These alones were established to address the corruption and error in the institutional church. The church itself had fallen into error, and it had taken authority to speak for God inconsistently with the word of God. Now, the last century in world history saw several vivid horrible examples of the institutional church acting counter to the Word of God. I mean, if you think of the nationalizing of the Lutheran Church by Nazi Germany, you think of the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa supporting apartheid, and you think of the Protestant churches with clergy who supported and encouraged the genocide of the Tutsis in Rwanda in the mid-1990s blindly following church leaders without clinging to Jesus as he's revealed in Scripture is to misplace loyalty and trust. And even in our own recent institutional history, we've had a less murderous example, but erroneous nonetheless. In the last generation, multiple and ongoing efforts have been made to reimagine God. There have been attempts to suggest that Christianity is too exclusive, that we need to open our minds for other options for salvation. Well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, this hour would pass from him. It was not possible. This is the only way. Jesus, in our passage this morning, asked the scribes, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, take your mat, and walk? He knew the cost of saying, your sins are forgiven. 
and he said it anyway. The miracle backs up his authority to declare and make manifest that forgiveness. Who is this that forgives sins? Well, so the message here this morning is that we're invited to follow the one whose gospel will bring you into conflict with earthly authorities, even authorities in the church. We need to cling to Jesus. We need to cling to that Jesus who loved us so fully that he went to the cross for us, died for us, was raised again that we might have life, just like the life he gave to the man who is no longer a paralytic. Jesus said, so that you know the Son of Man has authority on earth. Jesus has the authority. There is none other. He's victorious in this and in all situations. After the resurrection, Peter said, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. And Paul says in Romans, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see, when Jesus says, so that you may know, it's a word of comfort. That's a word of good news. It's a word of authority spoken for our benefit. That's our hope. It's our assurance it's our salvation. He is able. We know. And we, when Jesus says, so that you may know, it's also a word of command. It's a word of lordship. It's a word of commissioning. It's our job to share Jesus. Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead, Christ ascended into heaven. It is the good news. It's the only good news we have. And yes, it's good news that we know. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Say it with me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. That should be our song going out. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is our Savior's love for us. Friends, this is the good news we have to share. Go. Go share it. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest, remain, and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen.